The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to the show. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock. The Tonish and Michal Martin is my guest for the Thursday interview uh, this week. Uh, Tonish, you're welcome to the show. Um, so before we get into the, the usual, well, the usual fair makes it sound like uh, um, there, there's not an awful lot of interesting things to talk about. But uh, I'm, I'm sure you, like everybody else we've been talking today, would want to pay tribute to the legacy of Shane McGowan. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, very sad, actually, uh, because he's kind of a figure that's been in all our lives for so long. And we all kind of watch on externally in a way at at his life, if, if that makes sense. Um, and I think he was a unique voice, a unique person that had a sense of absolute independence in how he conducted his life and not overly concerned about what others thought. Mm. Musically, I think he was an extraordinary talent um, and uh, some great numbers, some great collaborations with the late Sinead O'Connor, um, Christy Moore and others. And then he put his own form and shape on songs like Dirty Old Town and uh, and, and many others. Um, for me, I never grew tired of uh, Fairy Tale of New York and this time of the year, yeah. You could almost feel it coming to the end of November, <laughs> the rumblings of the song <laughs> on almost all radio stations right through to the end of December uh, every year. And it's a song in many ways, work of genius, I feel, probably captures an awful lot of the Irish diaspora experience of yesteryear, perhaps, of earlier years. I came across recently a BBC thing on Twitter of all places about interviews, English people being interviewed about Irish construction workers. I don't know if you see that. No. It's fascinating in terms of the, the perspective from English broadcaster asking questions about the, 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 uh, the paddy yeah. construction. Are there too many of them here in the construction industry in England? Yeah. Taking our jobs. Murphy's and the likes. Uh, getting drunk yeah. and all that kind of thing and so on like that. And in a way, like, that, that, I, I wonder what it was like in America in, for people who emigrated in the 50s and 60s. And did he, did he like in that song, all new art to a certain extent can exaggerate uh, issues, but th- that song captures a lot. Yeah, um, you know, and there's a lot of depth in it, part altogether from the the, the the tune itself and its catchiness and all of that. And uh, you know, yeah, so it, I, I think it, it's it's huge sadness. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, and that whole sense of um, you know his Tipperary kind of experience, um, the impact of traditional uh, music on him, he just put a new genre together, mm. didn't he? Yeah. It's it's funny. I, I think Donald Fallon, the historian, is always really interesting. Today, one of his insights is: you, you know, you can't just call them an Irish band or a London band. They're very much London Irish, and they speak to that that connection. Um, and it's interesting because, like, your family history speaks to that complicated connection as well. It you does. Know, between both, both on my father and mother's yeah. side. I mean, uh, my father had three brothers that um, ended up in the British Army. Two during World War Two. One was a stepbrother, Jackie, who, um, and like he loved the uh, army clubs afterwards when he retired. No, he declared himself a communist afterwards and so on like that. And, yeah. and it was funny because he was one of the best raconteurs I ever came across. And then Philip was in Shaggy prison. He was captured at the fall of Singapore and was a Japanese prisoner of war in Shaggy, which was an infamous uh, prison camp. He, he emerged, survived at eight stone. Uh, he became a conservative. I, my favourite uncle, my godfather, Uncle Buddy, then on my mother's side, uh, emigrated um, uh, as a young man and worked in the Albert Hall. And he had to leave school early. He left the primary level. Um, but he was a fantastic um, reader and he introduced me to books. So he would bring back books from England to me yeah. to read. 
Uh, and he often said to me the worst thing, or his biggest regret in life was not having an autograph book because he met everybody in the, in the Royal Albert Hall. He, yeah. He was kind of a firefighter or whatever, usher there and so on like that. He, he used to stay there at night when the concerts were on. He saw Muhammad Ali, he met them all, all the great concerts. He loved opera. It's kind of a cock thing, cock working class thing at the time, a love of opera. Mm. And so he was a very well-read man who educated me in his own way. But you'd go to meet him and you'd invariably have a few pints like in, in some pub somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Even as a child going out. <laughs> I would, like, we wouldn't have the pints then, but... Yeah. And he'd bring some of his buddies and that, yeah. that was their experience, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he'd come home every Easter and he'd come home every September. Uh, so that it's it's a way that familial... But you, I think you summed up, uh, or Shane Fallon summed it up, like... Donald Fallon. Donald apologies. In terms of that London Irish which when I go and visit the various centres, even in my capacity as foreign affairs and we're working with, the, the, you just get a glimpse of that, mm. of that experience and it's it has changed over time and it's, mo- it's a much different experience now yeah. than it would have been a decade or two decades or three decades ago. So Michal Martin is with me, Tanishta and the leader of uh, Fianna Fáil. Um, Tanishta, you, you talked about your, your favourite uncle as you described your godfather Buddy on your mother's side who would have brought back these books um, from London for you to read. What books? Barstel Boy, who was, I always remember that. Uh, Brendan Bean, I think, um, uh, which opened up the world of Brendan Bean to me, which I wasn't familiar with prior to that. He he brought books on history. Um, the Seal Train was another great book, um, which was about the um, the Germans funding the Russians in World War One, and it was the Seal Train because it was a carriage. Lenin was coming back from Zurich. Mm. They basically were funding Lenin to fund the revolution to get the Russians off the Eastern Front and get them out of the war. And basically the finance enabled Lenin to spread the revolution. And it's that connection between funding politics, revolution is as old as the hills. Mm. And of course, the reason for the sealed train was Lenin had to, couldn't be seen or there could be no perception of letting on the motherland in the war against Germany. So he could claim afterwards he never set foot on German soil. Um, and um, so, and... and um, and many other uh, books of that of, of different natures. You know, the a great book um, which was written by um, a Cork author um, on the Italian Risorgimento, The Gadfly. Yeah. Uh, and he actually gave me a first edition of that book, uh, which my sister later um, mangled. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that happens. But, uh, but the, and I loved that book at the time. It just kind of invigorated yeah. me. Uh, I think it's, isn't it about the priest who's falling in love and the revolution is happening? Love and revolution is never, are never too far apart. No. So uh, was he responsible then for um, your interest in history, a historical awakening for you? Or I had you that already? I think an aspect of that. To, to, he, he, and it was my late mother-in-law said to me one time, she, she felt that he had an influence in my life which I never fully acknowledged. Okay. In terms of maybe that side of appreciating reading and literature. And my father would have been very into history as well. Yeah. Um, and um, but certainly uh, my, my uncle had a and he also was like when he'd come home he'd be a big walker and then he'd end up in a local pub and we'd be all down to him to three or four Martin kids yeah uh, rock shandies in the corner and he would just regale us with stories and yeah he kind of one of these characters who opened up the real world to you in a way from the sanitised world you might have been reared on by teachers telling you not to do this and not to do that and your parents telling you yeah and suddenly your uncles can do that uncles and aunts can do that you know you kind of you tell your nephews and nieces things you might choose your own kids from he he would have introduced me to the Long Valley in Cork uh, which is a famous pub in Winter Street in Cork which is people flocked with at Christmas time but he knew the owner Humphrey uh, and um, they were great buddies as as young kids and so and then we used when he'd come over then we'd go to the uh, the the, um, the grocers club uh, when we were later on then we were allowed to have pints and so on like that as teenagers and yeah. 20s we had some wonderful nights 
where we would just talk history. Uh, and he was a very knowledgeable guy for a guy that had left school at primary level. There was not, nothing you couldn't teach him about. He read every biography of every opera singer, and yeah. everything but uh, uh, war and, and, and Stalin and the whole lot, you, you name it. You, you taught history then in Prez for a year? Um, I thought, yeah, my main, I taught for five or six years in St. Kieran's College, oh, yeah. uh, where I taught history. Okay. Uh, I was only temporary in Prez. Okay. I got sick at the time and I was asked, what I, I was doing a master's degree at the time in history. Uh, and, but my main history teaching was in, in, in St. Kieran's College. Um, if you had to write a book about any period of history, when would you write it about? Well, I've written a book on the formation of the Irish parliament or the Irish political system. Um, we call it the freedom to choose. It was based on, an, on the MA thesis. It was a bit turgid because, of course, it's kind of footprint or footnotes and all the rest of it, and it might be a that tough read count. for people. But it's it's done anyway, and <laughs> I did it. But uh, that doesn't count. Um, in, increasingly, um, I'd like to do uh, the sort of period in nineteen twenties to the nineteen thirties in Ireland. Why? Uh, because. We, we, something happened, um, I think, post-treaty um, in terms of a closing in of the, of, of the country um, and in terms of very strong censorship laws, a very strong restrictive sort of, like it, it's almost the swinging 20s gave way to a very closed protectionist, in many ways, 30s. And I'd like to sort of work that out more. Uh, and there's lots of contradictions and, and, and paradoxes. So, for example, the world has gone fascist, uh, yet we bring in a, a liberal constitution in the context of freedom mm. of um, religion and fundamental rights and so on like that, which was quite a radical thing in its time. And also it checked um, the powers of the state in terms of referendums were allowed and judicial interpretation, which were quite radical. But anyway, I just think somewhere we became a very closed society. And um, I'd like to track that because the 20s were a bit more liberal. Um, not just in Ireland, yeah. in the context of Europe. And I, I also feel that it's much better now, but there was a tendency that we looked to at, at our own history in a silo and that we didn't look at it in a broad enough European context as to what's happening in other European countries um, at the same time, you know. There was, there was the 1930s in, in most countries was different from the... Twi- there, was a, there, was a, there was a pushback. Fascism was that pushback to a degree yes, yeah, in, in yeah. other countries. So is that what you mean about looking at yeah. it in the European yes. context? Yes, yeah, exactly. That in some ways we, we, we went through the same thing, but it had different results. It manifested in a different way in this country, we, is we it? We kind of checked it more here at one okay. level. Fa- but no, on the social side, and we were very conservative, you know, in yeah. terms of the Catholic But we, when I say we went through the same thing, we went through the, sa- we went through the same kind of um, late 1920s pushback, yes. reactionary pushback, but it just manifested differently in this country. Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's worth exploring. What, yeah. What, you know. So when did your political awakening come? I think with the outbreak of the Troubles in Northern Ireland um, because I'd have been eight years of age at that stage and suddenly 68, 69 we've only one channel remember and it's RTE mm. and you're watching violence on the screens you're watching the riots the pogroms uh, people appealing for help uh, coming down from the north to the republic into the government and all of that um, you're looking at crisis after crisis the arms crisis here all if you like consequences of the, the the what's going on in Northern Ireland, and my father was very interested. Like my father had a very strong interest in current affairs. So when I came home from school and we had our lunches at home because we lived around the corner. Yeah. So as you're eating your cabbage and bacon, you're listening to the one o'clock news, and the father was shh, shh, and you'd have to listen. So all that's coming into me. You know, it's all kind of influencing me. So I think Northern Ireland was the reason I got into politics. It consumed me, and I would have read up. 
about it. Uh, McGill Magazine was a big magazine from when I became a third level student. I'd go into the library to read it. It was be in the reference library. Um, and then um, Vincent Brown was the our kind of our really hero at the time. Yeah. The, the first major kind of I think investigative reporter in, in Irish journalism. So we would uh, you know, read a lot of and he used to all of these interviews with various people on the North, IRA included. Um, so the North clearly was a catalyst for me uh, to have that kind of interest. And then education would have been a, yeah. you know, the idea of everyone having an education in that. But the North was the catalyst because remember I'm in UCC, going at 79, 78, finished leaving, you're going in at a time of the hunger strikes are coming. Yeah. Very hot debates in, 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 in UCC. And, and how much, during when, when your kind of political views were forming and even your views on the North, to what extent were those kind of family connections, say, with the British Army, did that offer maybe a level of nuance in it your own understanding? It or didn't did, actually, in the beginning. Really? My, my father was quite Republican and yeah. he was different to his brothers. Uh, and my mother's family were very Republican. Yeah. My mother w- is what I would have called uh, uh, an instinctive gut Republican. Her father and mother were in the old IRA and, and, and her mother in particular, who I, uh, she was, I was two when she died, but she was the matriarch. She was a very strong firebrand. Uh, involved um, in in East Cork, and then later into a mental hospital, and then she would have been involved um, as a member of Common Man. And my grandfather, she married my grandfather then, who was in from, came from the Galtee area, mm. um, would have been involved in Knocklong in the rescue party to Knocklong, and she, uh, looking after Sean Hogan as a sentry basically um, when he was rescued. Uh, so that was a very st- and uh, so that was the kind of family. Uh, environment and you're correct. It was a very good point you're making. At that stage, that nuance wasn't there. Mm. My mother would always say, "Every person that's killed is some mother's son or daughter." That that was my mother's view on on, on, on violence. Um, and it was what well, it was uh, in and around the time of the hunger strikes. Myself and three others decided to go up to the north as students, mm. a bit naively. So we met some social workers. We met every political party. Um, and I then did begin to change then because I would have met, we met Sinn Féin representatives, we met Republicans, we met STLPs, we met social workers in West Belfast, East Belfast, in the Shankill, but working class Protestantism and, and mm. loyalism first incident. I met Andy Thierry, who was the head of the UDA at the time, um, and met Alliance. And then when I went into the rooms, the, the homes of the official unionist party, which was the dominant unionist party at the time, there were angry exchanges, but they left a deep impression because they they weren't looking at uniforms being killed. They were looking at their uncles, their fathers being murdered, as they put to me, and how would you like it? Yeah. And it kind of rocked the, the the sort of, how would I put it, the nice, secure, sort of, I'm down in Cork. I'm not tasting any of this, feeling any of this, yeah. experiencing any of this raw... The Republican of the ditch type. Yeah, and uh, I remember years later, David Irvine said it to me when we met on a in in um, Valley Castle in Coromila, he said to me, you've got that Southern guilt complex about the North, haven't you? Like, And he just snapped it at me. And that's what your problem is. You know, you, you guys think he left everyone down because of partition. And he was very perceptive, I think, and a, mm. a good analyst of the situation. And um, so I learned a lot. And that's when nuance came into it, when I began to see, look, we're not going to unite Ireland if we think we're going to unite it on our own. It has to be true reconciliation. It has to be true understanding of different traditions. And you t- you've got to try and get into the head of people who have their perspective, their view, their tradition, and try and understand it. What issues cause you, maybe not so much to have sleepless nights, but sleepless nights in the metaphorical sense today? 
Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe even decisions you've made. There's always there's winners and losers with every decision, and I guess your job is to make sure there's more on the winner side of the ledger yeah. than losers. But you, you will know <clears throat> that there's people who will lose out in this, or maybe not will not get entirely everything that they want out of it. You know, I, I'm thinking of everything from kind of decisions around budgets to mm-hmm. decisions around relaxing COVID restrictions when there was still some of the disease uh, uh, around, whatever it happens to be. I just wonder how you kind of on a personal level, uh, are you good at kind of setting that aside and thinking, well, listen, that's the job. I've signed up for it. Decision made. You go home well, and you forget about it. Does some of it ever nag? Some of it can. No, I, first of all, I, be, I like decision making. Yeah. And I have a view that if you make a decision, follow it through and, and deliver that doesn't mean that you don't evaluate the decision or the outcome of the decision and say, okay, if I'm doing... Because nothing ever stands still and nothing is... You, you never say never for never. Kind of. In other words, life evolves. Your position has to evolve with life. But I am anxious to get things done. And my big anxiety at the moment and annoyance and, and three years in government is the delivery of proper services for, for kids with disabilities. I just find... And we've allocated resources to it. Uh, and the system has not delivered... Uh, either via the HSA. I think education has been better and I would have been involved in 1998 in a big change in disability education in terms of education for people with special needs in terms of bringing in special needs assistance to mainstream schools for the first time, recognising autism for the first time, having a proper pupil-teacher ratio for children with special needs which did not exist before 1998. Mm -hmm. Anyway, education has moved well, the health side hasn't and access to therapies just isn't good enough and uh, you know, I've convened everybody, every single agency together mm. when I was Taoiseach. We're still at it, not giving up on it. We've transferred disability to children now to see can we get a better delivery mechanism in place. Um, and uh, the recruitment and retention of therapists so that children have ready access, not just for diagnosis, but for ongoing yeah. uh, treatment and so forth and monitoring. Because it does matter. If a child can get speech and language therapy very early on, it makes a world of a difference in that child's life. So that's what... If you want to ask me, and I'm speaking to someone in government, that angers me more than anything at the moment. Really? Yeah. And I've been at this now on an ongoing basis. And you've been, you've been, you've been in government yeah, for so, yeah. so long, not this, you say three yeah. years this time, but in government previously and in politics for so long. What, why well, do I mean, you think it has been so slow? I, think, I, I do think the location of it, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to people working in the health service because they have 100 months. Yeah. Health is so enormous that that doesn't often get acknowledged. But I can recall in, when I was first Minister of Health, we gave extra resources to recruit overseas. Because yeah. at that time, in the 2000s, we only had one school of speech and language, one school of physio, one school of occupational therapy. So we changed that in 2003 yeah. when I was Minister for Health. We created schools in Cork, Galway and Limerick. And there was opposition to it, by the way, from the profession saying, oh, you, we need one centre of excellence, all this kind of stuff. But even with that, that there was a threefold increase in the number of therapists. Mm. But that's, no, a lot of therapists go into adult services, a lot go into different services. I think a a policy was initiated then called progressing disability, which I don't think worked. I was opposed to it at the beginning. I was in opposition at that stage. That hasn't worked. Yeah. Uh, With the best of intentions that people do argue for the merit of it because they want all children having access to a central position. My view is that we we have to have multidisciplinary teams in our schools um, and uh, at least in our special schools. Uh, so you ask me what I'm being honest yeah. with you, that's the yeah. that's uh, gnawing away at me and uh, I'm not giving up on it. Uh, so uh, and I think we've made progress but not mm. You just before I let you go you use the phrase it's a, it, it, you know progressing disability was introduced with the best of intention. Do, does it frustrate you that that sometimes the public commentary doesn't reflect 
the fact that all these decisions are made with the best of intentions. You know, that, that, uh, and talk about the criticism that would be levelled at, you know, say at your government around housing. And sometimes it's, 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 it's that you don't care. about yeah, you know, they, yeah. they, 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 The current government don't care, the current government on the landlord side, whatever it happens to be. Now, I'm not kind of leaping to your defence on anyone's behalf when it comes to housing failure. And I, we're not here to get into kind of nitty and gritty, but I just, yeah. you know, the, the, point. I think the nature of the criticism sometimes. I think the Doyle is poor at substance. Yeah. And is good at, at polemic. Yeah. That makes sense. We're good at the slogans. And and look, that's we we've all been in opposition and in government. I'm not claiming any halos either way. Yeah. Uh but it's a very fair point you've made. Whereas the sh- the the Shannon, by the way, the Senate can be a very good camera place yeah. for reflection and legislation. And the demeanour of both government and opposition is better. And sometimes that's because you've independent senators there, sometimes your own senators are less um sort of adversarial in their approaches. Uh, it's a completely different theatre, but sometimes you get far better insights in the Senate mm. on legislation than you will in the cutthroat nature of Dyle which is who do we take out today kind of approach yeah. or who do we seek to undermine it. Has, that, got, sorry to go to, has yeah. that gotten worse in the last few years with with the advent of social media that now there's an added incentive? You get get, get your 30 second clip online. There's no question, but I wonder what, look, it was always there by the way. Yeah. Um, I'm not, but the but social that, media, the nature, but that's I think but the nature social media of, has, has the social media everywhere. certainly has accelerated. Yeah. I mean, everyone's thinking of the quotable quote for social media. Yeah. Uh, of going viral of whatever, you know. Um, like I remember it used to be uh, Joe Duffy. Uh, like when, I can always remember in health, someone rushing in the door, some official saying, uh, well, Liveline's gone on fire. Uh, it's gone wild, some issue, you know. Yeah. We've got to deal with it. You know, I think that, I, actually, I think it was the um, the famous, what was it, the tablets, the, um, oh, the iodine, iodine tablet. Iodine uh, tablet. Started off early morning and I always remember official coming and, uh, listen, Liveline's gone on fire, you've got to put the fire out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> now it's social media. Yeah. It's much, much different, you know. Uh, but it's much more dangerous on social media in the sense that the verification isn't there and mm. we've noticed that in the last two or three days people now publishing corrections and of fairly fundamental stuff yeah. um, in terms of uh, a live inquiry uh, and uh, so we do need far more um, mechanisms and regulation to govern verification and validation of stories on mm. social media uh, and and. We, we've got to learn that. that. That's a big challenge for us in democracy, I think. Uh, listen, lots of things uh, we could talk about. I'll tell you what I'll do before we wrap things up because you were talking about the books that um, uh, were brought home to you and it is kind of shopping season. Have you a book recommendation you'd give to anyone? Oh, um, uh, yeah. Let me think. I think uh, Scappatici uh, okay. is a, a must read um, by, um, I just read it, uh, Richard O'Rourke, yeah, uh, and uh, 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 sorry, <laughs> this sounds desperate. Uh, I'm on Killing Thatcher as well at the moment, uh, but but there's a great book by. <laughs> yeah, I know that sounds yeah. bad, but that's where yeah. I'm right now. Yeah. Uh, Caldwell is it Lucy Caldwell? Uh, beautiful book on the war, in sorry, the the dropping of bombs in Belfast during World War Two. It's a beautiful piece uh, of writing. Lots going on within the the novel. Um, and I got that as a gift from someone uh, recently finished it and uh, some great writers coming out of Northern Ireland um, Trespass is, uh, yeah. is, is another great book as well you know, so. Alright some recommendations so some, there Some incredible stuff um, Liam Brady yeah, I haven't read that yet but uh, if anyone's thinking of me yeah. <laughs> Alright well, there, there you have it now <laughs> a plug for his own Christmas present <laughs> sure. uh, Michal Martin-Tonish Michal thanks a million for joining us Not at all the Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four.
on News Talk.